Good morning, Summit Crossing family. So glad to see you this morning. Happy Mother's Day. I just love that video. I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, we love our mamas, so we wanted to focus on that for a little bit. Um, we are still in the lobby here, so uh, we want to just make you aware of that, that we know that you know that we know, and I get lost in that, but you know what I'm talking about. We're still here. Um, I want to let you know that during these, these strange times, and we're going to respond to what the governor said on Friday, uh, we're rolling out, and elders are, are still meeting, and rolling out a plan for re-entry um, toward gathering again. And it's not, we're not going to go flip a switch and go right back to the way things were, but we're, we've got some int- incremental changes, some phases uh, that we're going to work through. And so be prepared uh, maybe to look for an email, uh, a, a midweek update that's going to address that uh, this, this coming week. I want to thank you um, just for the giving to the Benevolence Fund, uh, giving to one another, donating. Uh, it's allowed us to really advance the gospel here in Limestone County. I uh, wanted one quick example this week as I was able to, to drive and deliver food to a home. Um, I took the Jesus Storybook Bible with me this time because I had asked, we'd asked some of the families, could we share a story um, with their, their children? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. I said, uh, all right, I want to tell you a story about Jesus. Have you ever heard of Jesus? And the answer was no. Um, so I got to sit down in, in, in somebody's front yard with three small children that never, never heard of Jesus, and I read page 272 from Jesus Storybook Bible, which is the prodigal son, and it was, it was pretty uh, it was, it was amazing. It was almost, almost like being in a, a, a southern, southeastern Asian country, except it was in English um, to talk about Jesus. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, it means a lot. We're in 1 Peter, and so I want to kind of transition there. We've been building context for the book. We talked about who Peter was. Last week we talked about who his readers were and that he's writing to Christians that are spread out all over the known world at the time. He's writing to encourage them and to remind them of the hope that they have in the face of great difficulty, trial, and even suffering. And that hits us at a perfect time, I believe, and where we find ourselves and much distress, chaos, uncertainty, and possibly uh, division as we could devour ourselves. And so let's stop and let's say, what does God's word have to say to us? Here are three points for this morning. Number one, a living hope. Number two, purposeful trials. And number three, inexpressible joy. Now let's start. Number one, So Peter writes of this sure hope, a living hope. You heard the verses that were just read. It's not a a wishful thinking, uh, not an Americanistic, a Western hope of I hope this works out, a wishful thinking, but a rugged hope that is anchored in the past according to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's verse 3. The resurrection for Peter, the resurrection of Jesus for Peter was a life-changing reality. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the end of all Peter's hopes for God restoring the kingdom that he thought he was going to restore, the the Davidic kingdom, the the millennial kingdom, if you will. The mission of Jesus died with him. As uh, any revolution, it does not continue when the revolutionary leader dies. At least that's the way it had gone up to this point. But once Peter saw that Jesus defeated death through the cross, hope in Jesus has no more enemies. He's defeated the last enemy, and that's why Peter says here, a living hope as opposed to a hope for a potential future, like uh, defeating the Roman army. For us, maybe 
getting the perfect job or the, the perfect spouse or getting the grade you needed or the happy family or the boyfriend or girlfriend or the video game or the early retirement. Our hope is not in those things. It's a false hope. It's in living, it's a living hope because Christian hope clings to a person, not an idea. It's not in hopes of a circumstances changing, our lifestyle improving, getting back to uh, middle-class America. That's not our, our hope. It's not in the, the economy returning, not in a vaccine discovered, not in enough food in the pantry or money in our account. Not at the core of what Christianity is. We get it confused sometimes. And we're still in our homes and we're not meeting corporately. And therein lies beauty and brokenness. They're heroic, heroic stories. I mean, we're taking care of our, own, our church body and our community through you guys donating and delivering food. We're paying mortgages and electricity bills and grocery tabs. And there are great stories of missional communities come, uh, coming together and helping uh, each other. But what I realized this week, and my, my heart is heavy even today, is that, that even though our lives in this quarantine seem like they're on this indefinite pause that the brokenness of sin has also quarantined with us and it is not on pause you're still dealing in the trenches every day with the everyday effects of the fall with strained marriages and broken relationships and rebellious children and tired parents and addictions and loneliness and depression caring for aging parents and as we saw this week even horrible racism it's just still there and it's in our face And knowing that all the brokenness is already there, and now with the added extra pandemic stress causing divisive views on that, it is easy to lose hope. <laughs> and that's why we need something stronger than a hope that things will improve. We need something more than an idea, a utopia, a positive thinking mentality. We need something with power. We need something that we can cling to now, not just when things get better. We need a living hope. You better believe it. One that won't die, one that can't die. Peter saw Jesus defeat death itself and therefore bring a hope that cannot die either. It lives. It was a hope that is better even than what Peter thought he needed. The hope that lives because Jesus lives. And Jesus brings this, this steadfast, rugged hope in spite of our circumstances. Not, not dependent on our circumstances. That speaks to eternity in our hearts, but it also provides for us an inheritance that is imperishable and is undefiled and is unfading. It, it can't die. It can't get messed up. It, it doesn't get weaker. Peter speaks in the negative here, probably because he doesn't know what really to relate it to. He just knows that it, it ain't like what's here. Everything here is falling apart. <laughs> you leave something long, long enough, it just falls apart. You constantly have to cut your grass. You're constantly having to plant so, and you, vegetables again. They're, they just, weeds just happen. It's like this body I got. It's, it's fading. <laughs> my eyesight. Like my, my kids bring me stuff and they're like, hey, Dad, can you show me this? I'm like, hold on. I got arm length. You got to hold that way back there. I mean, I can't, I can't see that. Sorry, my, my contacts are rotating right now. 
you know. Um, I look at the trampoline in our backyard and my eight-year-old's like, hey, come jump with me. And I'm just like in fear of that thing because something's going to happen. I just can't do what I used to do anymore. Uh, I remember my, my oldest, Kate, and she, I said, oh, I got to go get a haircut. I mean, we, we need, look at that. I need a haircut. So I gave myself a haircut. This was, this was a long time ago. I said, I need a haircut. And she said, why don't you wait for it to grow in first? I mean, my, I'm, I'm losing my hair. It's just the mortality of this body. It's fading away. But not the hope that God gives us. This, there's this beauty that our final inheritance is not merely kept by God, but by His power, but it actually is God Himself. Because we have such a strong hope based in Jesus' resurrection, and being guarded, and we're being guarded by the power of God, you can not only weather the storms and trials that life throws at you, and it will, but you have access to joy in the midst of them. That's what Peter is getting to. So let's move on. Point two, purposeful trials. This is starting verse six and verse seven. Let me read that again. In this you rejoice. Talking about the inheritance and the living hope. For though now for a little while, while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you have Jesus as your living hope, you have a different perspective on suffering and trials and difficulty. I'm not saying you go out seeking that, that at all. You're not looking for trouble. You're not looking for, per, for suffering or, or persecution at all. But Christians know that when they find it or it finds them, that there is inherent value and purpose, according to Peter. See, Peter actually takes the idea of joy and trials, and he mingles them together trials that even cause grief, that those two things, they don't seem like they would go together, but Christianity can deal with the reality of life. And this is the reality of life, that these two are mingled together often, that, that it brings, Christianity brings hope not only for eternity, but for a future that breaks into our present so that you can have hope even in times that you wish never even existed. You wish that you had never found yourself where you are today. That's the beauty of Christianity. See, trials should never surprise us. And out of his mercy, Peter says, that, that they come, if necessary, for a little while. And of course, we may be thinking, okay, that's enough. Or, or I passed a little while, a long while ago, in, in our estimations. But I promise you that neither Peter nor God is looking at our struggles mechanically. Uh, either like, well, here's the end result, and you just need to get to here so that this happens, and I'll see you at the end. That's, that's not the way that God is, is looking at our, our trials. And grieve, uh, Peter even says grievous. You're grieved by various trials. I know when, when my youngest, or, or Abby or Jack, when they, they come in and they've, they've fallen off their bike or their, their scooter or whatever, and there's just this big gash on them, I don't go in there and just get a Band-Aid and, you know, clean it out and go, hey, you know, you'll be, you'll be fine, and, and it's very mechanical. I enter into the hurt with them because I look at it and I see what it has done to them, and it's, they, they're in tears and they're, they're crying. And it really hurts because it's a real injury. And so we don't look past that and go, you know what? 
this band-aid will take care of it and you'll be fine. You say, no, come here. Let me, let me give you a hug. I know that that hurt. And this band-aid is going to help. But in the meantime, this is a grievous trial. And you're going to feel that. And it's going to be for your good because you're going to learn from this. You're going to be changed by this. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. I take great comfort in Psalm 56, verse 8. It says this, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, God, God keeps account of all that we walk through. And he does care. And he doesn't forget any of them. And, and they're working for us. We'll get to that. Peter says, grieved now by various trials. Like, like what you're walking through right now amid the COVID-19 laced on top of normal, profound brokenness, whether that's in your life or in your family or in your, neighbor, uh, your neighborhood, in your, your work relationships, your extended family relationships. Um, we've got this global response with this myriad of different results from one scene unseen little bug it's bringing out all these more issues to deal with and as a christian how does this work how, how do we realize our, our need for jesus that this trial or sorrow or suffering or persecution or heartache these terrible circumstances they drive us to jesus for christians that's where it drives us in fact most of us don't really get to the joy in christ we don't get there any other way rather than some, until something like that happens. We don't just choose to find our joy in Christ. We look everywhere else. We are like the prodigal son. And Tim, Tim Keller was helpful um, when he uh, kind of related uh, finding joy in sorrow to a thermostat or, or a furnace in your home. If you go to the, the thermostat and you'll set it at 68 in the winter. And when it gets really cold, it gets down in the, the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, and you know that the furnace kicks on. And that's where the heat comes in. And it brings the temperature back up to where it's stable. See, that's how we don't just fall apart during trials if we are grounded in Jesus. That, that sorrow actually kicks in our joy because our joy is in Christ. That's where we realize where our true joy comes from in the midst of that sorrow. Right? That it's not from circumstances, not from money, not from reputation or being in shape or being pretty enough or having enough grades or being popular. What, any of that kind of stuff because it all falls short when you're in the intense heat of trial. The power of Christ emerges and joy from him, not based on any circumstances, and it starts to shine. That is what we have access to now today. This living hope brings a joy that mingles with our sorrow, right? We're starting to see that suffering refines us, our faith. It is a tool that transforms our hearts used by the Holy Spirit to help us see the world differently, something that we could not figure out by ourselves. We move in these times from a man-centered view of life to a God-centered view of life, of the world. Our source for joy moves to what pleases God more than what pleases us. Maybe you even say more about his creator rights than our individual rights. See, when you know that, 
the trial that the trial is leading you deeper into Jesus, when, when you get that, when that goes from your head to your heart, uh, to, that we're more changed into his image, joy kicks in because you know what is happening. That you, you don't ignore the sorrow, you don't, but you experience sorrow that's mingled with this, this clinging to joy. You may think, that, that is complicated. I'm like, but that's how we are as humans. We can be both sad and glad at the exact same time. Like my, my oldest daughter, I remember when she, she got to this point where she didn't need me to read to her at, bed, at bedtime anymore. She's, I was terribly sad because I enjoyed that, and yet glad because it means that she's maturing, she's growing up. You can have those same feelings, those different feelings at the same time. That's what Peter is saying in verse 7. He says, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. Really? Do we believe that? That our faith, it's genuineness, it's realness. That not just what we say we believe, not just what we want to believe, not just what we think we should believe, but what our lives actually reflect that we do believe. How we live. Do we believe what Peter says? Is it more precious than gold? And if you think about it just a little bit, that's an amazing statement. Most of us would rather have the gold because of what we understand. He says, not only is our faith more precious than gold, but like gold, the fire doesn't burn it up. It purifies it. Our faith is the same way. It's not like wood that gets on fire and burns up and there's nothing left. The gold is purified. It's an intense process. I mean, nowadays they take gold and to purify it, they just they put it in acid, you know, sulfuric and hydrochloric acid, and, and that purifies it. Back, back in the old days, a long time ago, they melted it. And gold, I did a quick Google search. I'm not a smelter by any means, but a quick Google search says the melting point of gold is at 1948 degrees. That's pretty hot. It's an intense process. And that's what Peter is getting at. So yeah, it's worth it. It's more precious than gold and found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes. Now, growing up, uh, I thought that that meant, that's verse 7, I thought that that meant because of my faith that Jesus would receive glory, uh, praise and glory and honor. And that's not untrue, but I think what Peter's getting at here is that he is saying that as our faith is, is purified, as we run to Jesus more, more quickly and more fully, and we are more changed into his image, and we love him more, and the more that we're changed into his image, the more that we love him, the more that we seek him. And, and you see that that just kind of is a, a running uh, result, that, that the, the result when Jesus returns is that he, that we actually will receive praise and honor and glory. And that praise is not worship. Jesus is the only one worthy of worship. But it's praise as in a commendation. Like uh, when my kids cut the yard, I'm like, great job. You know, that was, that was good. Or well done, thy good and faithful servant. This is what, what we're getting at. It means that Jesus is really excited when our faith is in these chances to grow. And, and we grow from faith to faith. As we mature and we, we start to get excited and, yes, even joyful when we know that a trial will take us even further and deeper into Jesus. Peter mingles joy and trials because, as a Christian, trials don't work against us anymore. 
They work for us. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. Trials are not here to put you down. Not as a Christian. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. This is where Paul addresses this. And it's in light of this difficulty. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing for us, right? Our goal isn't to escape the trials, but to see trials, difficulty, affliction, to see that as a servant to God. Not against us, but a servant to God working on our behalf to prepare a future glory better than anything you can imagine is preparing us for heaven. That's a step in a Christian maturity. It moves us past this just praying for God to deliver us, and it changes our prayers into God develop us. Right? Not my will, but yours. It's a deeper prayer life, and it doesn't mean you don't ask for the cup to be passed from you, but you recognize the eternal value that it has for your soul, and you trust your Father in heaven just like Jesus. When we learn this, we can speak in our moment, in moments of life, when we find ourselves suffering like this, and we can say things like this, loneliness, prepare for me an eternal weight of glory. Cancer, prepare for me an eternal weight of glory. Heavy things like disease or bankruptcy. Feeling like a failure in life, right? Your dreams that you had in high school of making it or a happy marriage or a happy family or a successful job or or making a difference in the world. And you look around and you're in your 30s or mid-40s or 50s, your 60s, and you think, none of that worked out at all. These are the trials that grieve us. And we've all got them. And they really hurt. And we need to admit that. We need to admit that they hurt. And we don't need to try to pretend that it's different than that. And, or that we're tough enough to handle it. Because at night when you lay your head on your pillow, when you are alone, you lose. It's more real when you can't constantly distract yourself. Maybe it's something simpler for you, like you never finish anything or you feel second best or that you just don't measure up. It doesn't have to be a huge trial. The idea is that if you are in Christ, got to be in Christ, your trials are not damaging you. They are purifying you. And that, as we grow, births joy. I didn't say that they didn't hurt but they aren't damaging you or condemning your soul, right? If you realize what Peter is saying, they are preparing you for heaven as we speak. Finally, three, inexpressible joy. In the fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Joy is number two, right? And so I think joy should be more of a characteristic of Christianity today than I believe that it actually is. I don't know if it's really perceived like that. I mean, one of my pet peeves is mean Christians. I just, ah, that shouldn't be a thing. 
right? I mean, joy is really important, especially since in John 15, verse 11, where here's what Jesus says. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. To have the joy of Jesus in us, that we're full. <laughs> it's interesting that, that Peter not only mingles joy with sorrow and trials, but ends this thought to his readers for those of you who have not seen Jesus, that's what he says, um, which we have that in common with them. We have not seen Jesus. Uh, that, that, that he says this, and it's in the present tense, not the past tense, the present tense, he says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You're walking through trials, and not one day you will see glory. One day you will be full of joy and expressible. It is you rejoice, present tense, now. That's something. He isn't saying be fake, put on the mask, suffer like a good Christian, pretend everything's fine because you know that it's supposed to be fine because you got Jesus in your heart, so everything's supposed to be fine. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's not saying, yes, I'm having a trial. I'm just praising God through it. And you're just white knuckling and you're, and you're just dying on the inside. That is not what it is. It's a real joy that comes out of a real relationship that goes deep with Jesus, has roots that go deep and not this superficial pretending to be what you think you ought to be. It is who you are because you've walked through the trial and you've been burned and purified and your faith really does believe. That's real Christianity. That's, that's a real faith that is connected to a living hope that produces a joy that does not make sense and is inexpressible. You just, people, how are you, how are you having joy? You've got cancer. I'm like, I know. Jesus is so good. That's somebody that walks with Jesus, that understands that though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil for you are with me. You're riding your staff. They comfort me. That's somebody that doesn't just read it, but lives it. That's the difference. That's the relationship we are called to. That's how Paul ends up singing in a Philippian jail chained to a guard that would love to see him suffer. And he's just singing. That's not just for super Christians, that's for Christians. Don't forget that. His, per his circumstances had no more power over him. And the worse it got, he knew the worse it got, the more glory it was preparing. And so I mean, that's hard to keep a guy down like that. The joy makes no sense. How did Jesus handle his trials and sufferings on the cross? What, what did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did he say, I'm rejoicing in the fact that, that I'm on my way to the cross? Praise God, I'm about to suffer. No, he didn't. He said he was sweating as it were, great drops of blood. He said, if this cup could be passed from me, please do, but not my will, yours. He really grieved. He really lamented. He really hurt. And later Peter's going to say that he, he provided for us an example in his suffering. He did not bypass the hard part, and neither do we. And yet, at the same time, as he cries out from the cross, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, And looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy was his motivation. 
He may not have been smiling, but joy runs deep. And it is a motivator, the joy of reconciling his people, the joy of vindicating God's name, the joy of knowing that, every, that he took everything that you deserve so that you get everything that he deserved when you believe. That's joy. That's where the joy comes from, that Jesus took our place and he knew that he was taking every sad thing that sin brought in and he was going to make it untrue forever. And that it was rock solid and it could not be undone and could not be challenged. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon said it like this, You can stand before God now as though you are Christ because Christ stood before God as though he were you. That's the gospel. The joy set before us changes us. That is Jesus Christ himself. He is our inheritance. Our trials drive us deeper into him. He wants us to find our joy in him and nowhere else. So let's seek joy in Jesus wherever we, whenever we find ourselves hurting today. I just ask you to do that. Do you know Jesus in such a way that you can say that? Are you a Christian? Do you just know the stuff to do? Or when trials hit, is your heart really heated up for him? Does the thermostat kick on and joy enter in? I'm not saying that you're happy. I'm saying that, that you know that it has a purpose. That there is a, that he is your treasure. That he is your ultimate hope. I would just say if you don't, please contact us. Please, please contact us. Let's pray these three things.